Purple Elephant shower thought of the day. If you eat something with a cheese filling, you become the thing with a cheese filling. <laughs> I just love that one. This is Purple Elephant Radio, where we hear about storytelling, originality, and creativity from the creators who are actually making something matter. I'm your host, Sean Green. Hey guys, I just wanted to jump in before this episode began to give it a little context. You notice that that shower thought wasn't my voice, that was Kara Lawler's. I asked Kara to come on the show to interview me, and it was a win-win situation because she's developing her own podcast, Telehealth Unmuted, and so she wanted a little practice for interviewing someone on a podcast, and I, I wanted someone to ask me questions because I feel like Whenever I have an interview, I, I learn more about myself. I learn more about the guest. And sometimes things just pop up that I never realized I thought about. And the other part is that I wanted to talk about the ideas and the new book, The Purple Elephant Artist, which you'll notice this podcast was recorded a, a while ago, a month ago. And we refer to it as The Purple Zine, but that name has changed. So Purple Zine, Purple Elephant Artist, same thing. And my plan was to have the book ready to order by the time this episode released. But just the way things worked out, the book should be available for pre-order with the actual release date being right around the beginning of September. So only two weeks away, but I will be giving plenty of updates on Instagram, Facebook, uh, maybe even in this podcast. But I just wanted to give that message before the episode began. So enjoy the episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. Um, welcome to Sean's show. I am here today. You probably have heard me before. My name is Kara Lawler, and I am here as a host this evening. Um, and I want to welcome Sean Green onto the show. He is a writer, filmmaker, podcaster, videographer, collage maker, and he failed to list improviser, stand-up comedian, and other things. So I will for him. Welcome to the show, Sean. Welcome to your show. <laughs> Kara, thank you for having me. Thank you for agreeing to be the host of this special episode, which we'll see how it's going to go. And just really quick, I'll probably add a little opener at the beginning of this, but the intention of this episode is the fact that I never really talk about myself. So I figure what's a, a better method than using my own podcast and using my own friend to ask me questions so I can answer stuff about myself. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, I have not been in the interviewer seat, so this is exciting for both of us. <laughs> um, it's such a gift to be on the show today, Sean, because, I mean, we shared the stage doing improv and sketch comedy throughout college. Uh, back in May, you had me on the show, so it's exciting to, to have a little bit of a role reversal. And you're absolutely right. Because you're usually in the driver's seat, you're usually the one asking questions. So um, tonight, I will be asking those questions. And the first thing I really wanted to jump into is you know, I listed, you do so many things. You're a writer, you're a filmmaker, you're a podcaster, videographer, collage maker. I listed these before, but just in case people missed it. And I'm wondering, you're doing all of this while you're in college. What's a typical day for you? 
Uh, that's a good, that's a good opening question. Right now in my, my schedule has changed drastically throughout college, but at this moment, it's a little less structured than maybe it has been at, at other points. Like today, usually it's, I'll do a little bit of a meditation. I'm not going to like boast myself and say, Oh, I'm, you know, uh, the ultimate meditator, but I always do like 10 to 15 minutes in the morning, then coffee, lots of coffee. And just these past like few weeks, it's been either working on, you know, writing, doing a little blog post, or, you know, maybe if I, I have writer's block, then I'll come up with something that takes a little less thought, like just mess with collage stuff. And also, and we'll probably get into this in a little bit, but I've been doing some video editing stuff. And so that I, I'm kind of picking my own hours for that. But it's, you know, again, if I have that kind of block, and I'm not thinking of super creatively, it's like, that's a nice thing to fall back on, because I know I can do it. And it doesn't take as much creative thought. But that's the morning. And that morning usually goes to like, 2pm. And after that, it's like, lunch. And after lunch, that's where I kind of get lazy, uh, veg out. Um, <laughs> and, and I've been doing yoga recently. Uh, and that's usually like a afternoon thing. I mean, it sounds like you have this structure that you created for yourself that you identified that you needed with the meditation, with the yoga, um, having that designated time to rest. And I think that's so important as a creator. Um, one of the things that I really wanted to to ask you about is um, the book, uh, The War of Art, which you said, you know, really inspired you. It's by Stephen Pressfield. And so... Um, I was looking at kind of a synopsis of the book and one of the big things that it really emphasizes is, um, recognizing and overcoming the obstacles of ambition that can kind of get you where you need to go as a creative and overcoming whatever obstacles those might be. So for you as a creator, as an artist, what obstacles have you had to work to overcome, um, in your, in your endeavors? Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of different ways you could go. I could go about answering that. It's, you know, on the writing side and, and blogging, there's one thing of it, one kind of resistance to overcome. On the, the stand-up comedy side, that was a completely different type of resistance of, of fear to overcome. And they're similar, but they were different. Uh, just really quick, the performing side of things, because that was more where I, I, I started. That was the bigger thing in terms of overcoming something. And for me, I would just call it like stage fright. I would call it, you know, anxiety and or, or fear, whatever words you want to use for it. People know it. It's kind of the, the butterflies in the stomach. Um, and it was once I kind of overcame that, and maybe we can touch on, if you want me to go into more detail, I can, but I, I overcame that. That was kind of early, early college. And then from there, it was a different type of resistance to overcome with writing and realizing that I, I guess that I had something to say because with comedy, you can make jokes about anything. You can do observational humor. You don't have to have the most fascinating life. Um, but with writing, even though, you know, I'm not really writing nonfiction stories, it's more the, the blogs are more like ideas from what I've read. It was a huge 
obstacle for me to overcome this idea of thinking I had to be a hundred percent original. And if my, if an idea could be traced back to something I read, then it like, I'm not worthy of writing it. And it was like, if someone already said it once, I can't give my opinions. I can't alter it at all. It's done. And realizing that that was like paralysis for me. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you, I mean, how did you work to overcome it? Like what, what were the steps to getting there? Because that's a process, you know, on the writing side. Yeah. On the writing side. Yeah. So I, I remember, and this was like maybe sep- last September. So kind of the heart of the pandemic, which is really when a lot of this writing stuff and purple elephant stuff came to be. Cause I would say this is kind of a, a getting off track, but you know, I was doing the the short films for a little bit, but I wouldn't consider what I was doing, like a brand that had any cohesive message until I started writing and writing regularly. But September, I had maybe two or three posts that I did sporadically and I, I'm so proud of them, but you know, I would just, I would write them and edit them and they were only a thousand words uh, roughly. And I could not get myself. I was like, this isn't enough. This isn't right. This isn't original enough. And I just, I was stuck on those. And so eventually I did post those and it was like three or four. Um, and if you ever like look at the website, it's night and day, how different they are from the other stuff I've written. And then it was in November, really like late October that I read this book called the practice by Seth Godin. And, you know, I'd read a lot of his stuff before and he's awesome. And I've talked about his kind of ideas and put them in blog posts before, but that book specifically, and it's his most recent book. It was such like a simple thing, like a little one sentence thing at the end of a chapter. He's like, if you really want to become, you know, a better thinker or a, a better writer, write a blog post every day for 30 days. And I don't think there's some deep answer. I think I was just waiting for someone to tell me that and waiting for someone to say it doesn't have to be 100% original. It doesn't have to be so so unbelievably outstanding. It can just be a 300-word, 400-word little thing that I write in an hour in the morning. And it was doing that for 30 days that completely changed my perspective on what it means to be creative. So you say like it, it changed your perspective. What, what do you think you learned? How do you think your perspective changed after doing that for 30 days? I, I think there are a couple different things that changed, but I guess the biggest thing was this idea of, you know, I mean, everyone, it's kind of become this cultural thing that we know you don't have to be perfect. And we know that perfectionism isn't, perfect. And it's, there is no way to be perfect. Like there is no perfectionism. And I think people intellectually understand that, but it's this kind of like emotional thing of, well, I know it doesn't have to be perfect, but something inside me isn't letting me post it, um, share it, write it until it is perfect. And again, this goes back to Stephen Pressfield's book, the, the war of art. And it's basically a, long-winded way of saying I shifted I think from the amateur mindset which needs that needs things to be perfect before they can be shared or posted to the professional mindset which I would define as posting on a deadline and 
it doesn't matter if it's perfect. It's going to have to be sent out by midnight. And I think that probably relates to kind of your background of, of journalism. Yeah, it definitely does. And I, I love what you said about, you know, not fixating on things being perfect. And I think that a lot of creatives feel like they need to be shackled into this really high standard. Um, and it kind of paralyzes people, right? Where you can't do anything because you're overwhelmed by this pressure that's completely self-applied. And I've noticed like many different times throughout my career, both in undergrad when I was quite literally on a journalism deadline and even now um, in my day-to-day job when I get a client assignment, you know, to write an article or to create a flyer, I sometimes what I do is I just get a blank Google Doc and I just start writing <laughs> and I write anything that comes to mind. I call it a brain dump. I make my my uh, team do it too and we just sit and we, and it's a judgment-free zone. I just say, what, what comes to mind? What are we thinking? You know, and eventually it turns into a great idea, but it starts with muddy, <laughs> muddy ideas, yeah. non-perfect ideas. So I love that. And, you know, I, I should zoom out a little bit. I assume that everyone listening here already knows who Sean Green is because they're listening to the Purple Elephant podcast. But for those who might not be aware, um, he is the founder and creator of the Purple Elephant Collective. And the primary function of PEC, I don't know if people call it that, but I'm going to start calling it PEC, is sharing wisdom and inspiration for people who create by doing a variety of things, short films, podcasting, blogging, um, collages. So he just does all of it. And I'm wondering, Sean, how did you get into this? Like, I don't know if you've shared your like origin story of creating Purple Elephant, but I want to know. And I think the listeners would too. Yeah, I think it's it's kind of a weird origin story where I could name any number of things and be like, this is where it started. But I remember this was probably middle of, of – and it really was all in college, I should mention, because I'd always kind of dabbled with wanting to, to write um, in high school, but nothing that ever got shared. It, it really starts in college because that's where I took action, I think. Um but to answer your question, it's a mix between having these lofty ideas that were way too ambitious at the time and then, you know, just doing a little bit of work at a time. Because just to give you a quick example, middle freshman year, me and a close friend, Maddie Bunton, I remember pitching this idea of like a magazine. And I was like, oh, I want to do a a creator magazine. And it was like, I just, I don't even know where this came from. This is before Purple Elephant, but I'm like, I want to call it the Elephant Magazine. <laughs> and this kind of relates to like, if someone's like, why do you call it Purple Elephant? I think this can be kind of part of the origin story where there are two reasons for Purple Elephant. The first is, I don't know if you've like heard the expression. It's sometimes they say pink elephant, but it's like, don't picture a, a elephant in a tutu on a circus ball. And it's like, that's all you can think about. And, you know, I've heard that with, you know, don't picture a, a clapping monkey, whatever it may be. There's that kind of idea of the paradox of you can't tell me not to think about something. And that to me came to represent, you know, what's the the thing, you know, for me, it might be writing or filmmaking. It's what's the thing that you can't really give up without feeling like you're giving up 
on life in a sense. And that sounds a, a little dramatic, but I, I think everyone has that that thing and sometimes it gets kind of pushed down a little bit, but it doesn't like disappear. Um, and I think for me, it, it was all kinds of things. It was writing, it was filmmaking. I made little short skits with neighbors kind of, you know, when we were in middle school and in, in grade school. And I would do like skits for with my sister for my babysitter, like when we were little, little kids. So it was like all these number of things that don't seem connected. Um, but then it's like when you look back, you can kind of see how they came together. But the other aspect of the the elephant and the reason I think I wanted to call that that magazine idea the elephant was I had heard this like allegory or, or myth of, you know, it was like three three blind men walk up to this creature and they don't know what it is. And one feels the the tail and thinks it's it's one thing. One feels the the trunk and thinks it's another thing. One feels like just the side. And I'm deep like summarizing the the heck out of this. But one feels the side and thinks it's another animal. And I think the point of that story, I, I think it it relates to like a religious thing of, oh, that's what what God is. But I I could interpret that as we all kind of want the same things, but our means of expressing it are different. And this is not true maybe for everyone, but I think for creatives specifically, we all want to make art in one sense or another. We all want to tell stories in one sense or another. And it's, are you going to write a novel? Are you going to write blog posts? Are you going to write a short film and, and eventually make films? And it's, if you're an artist, are you going to paint, collage, do graphic design and only work digitally? It's like all these different means, but what matters is the elephant. It doesn't matter what kind of the, the medium is. It's what's the message. And the message kind of supersedes all, all means of expressing it in a, a very esoteric way of saying that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. And it makes a lot of sense um, when you use that analogy to describe what the Purple Elephant Collective does. It really is this community of people that are pursuing their own elephant <laughs> in a lot of different ways, right? So, you know, immediately what comes to mind, you know, as a leader, thinking about this from a leadership perspective, how do you lead this collective when there are so many different goals that people have for being a part of it and collaborating with it? What's your leadership style and how do you navigate such a dynamic and creative place while still providing, you know, that structure that people also need? for an organization. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be so transparent in saying that the leadership style is really just me leading myself and being my own kind of boss and saying, get it done at this time. And, you know, I've had, and I, I'll, I'll shout out Sveta, Sveta Wannenberg for doing pretty much all the illustrations and kind of that partnership has been really effective. But in terms of me leading a group of people, that's where I want to be. That's where I'm striving to be. And so I can answer that question as how I would like to be a year from now or two years from now. But 
for the time being, the leadership style is me creating systems for myself, sitting down for an afternoon and saying, these are the colors, these are the fonts, this is the style of Purple Elephant for Instagram, and then just committing to doing that, um, you know, day after day. And I've taken a little hiatus from social media, but that that was the intention for a while. Um, and I'll just say, because I kind of thought of this too, the way I've done the podcast, I haven't put out a, an episode. When This episode may come out a while from when we're actually recording it, but I've taken about two or three weeks, maybe four weeks from the podcast. But the way I was doing it is 10 episodes a season. And what I was doing between each season was realizing how do I need to adapt the brand? Because ultimately the message isn't really going to change but the look and the feel is going to have to change if I want to attract the right audience to the right message, the message that's going to help them. And ultimately, I haven't had a ton of success finding, you know, rapid growth. And I think because of that, I I can almost be kind of the, the voice of like, oh, keep going because, you know, it, success doesn't come at the snap of your fingers and it doesn't come at, um, you know, overnight. And so when I optimize the brand, it's, I don't have that much data. And I know you're super into kind of data and adapting the using data to kind of adapt the brand. And I wish I had that. But for now, it's kind of, I just have to talk one on one with like the few people that are, are interacting with my blog posts with, with my podcast and seeing hearing their opinions. So it's very one-on-one right now. And I got totally sidetracked from the question of leadership, but that's my answer. I think that, no, but honestly, I think um, these are questions that leaders have to consider and have to analyze, especially when you're spearheading a brand and you're owning a brand because the integrity of the brand and the legacy of the brand and the impact that you're able to have is readable through data. And that's what I love about data is um, it's a quantifiable um, kind of marker of how you're doing and where you're going. And there's a lot of different ways to interpret it. So I don't think that's off topic at all. I think it's a really important thing um, for somebody who is curating a brand to have to recognize and kind of verging into the next bit of the conversation. I know you're interested in branding and in marketing and and have a passion for talking about that. What do you think is the biggest, I guess, challenge right now for marketers, maybe even for what you've experienced with your own brand um, or, or something that you speculate that's going on on kind of a larger scale for marketers? Yeah, I mean, I could definitely give my answer for the my own brand, which I think would be different because the biggest problem I've had is this kind of almost like dissatisfaction of the way people are currently marketing where, you know, it's a lot of clickbait. It's a lot of listicles and getting mad that it's working and getting mad that, you know, someone like Gary V and nothing, I'm not going to people I'm sure know who he is. He's not a bad guy, but what I don't like is the idea of just repeating the the same thing day after day, making 
outrageous kind of guesses um, in the the market in, oh, this business is going to blow up. And that almost kind of like hyper, what's the right word? It's uh, right now I see a lot of marketing is a mix between trying to get people's attention through pessimism and fear. And the other half is through like hype and and false claims and uh, modified get rich quick schemes, if you will. Right. And there's a lot of middle ground, but I think that's the spectrum that I see. Extremes. Yeah. And what, what I've kind I've kind of had to humble myself and say, you know, originally I, I would walk in and think, I don't want to write a listicle because, you know, those are cheesy and they're not, you know, I don't want to do clickbait because that's not, that's manipulative. And then having all these kind of iterations of what I've tried to do with branding and realizing, oh, I guess I do have to make a post that's just a quote, which to me was like the biggest thing where I'm like, I don't want to write a quote post, but people like that. And there's nothing wrong with it. But it's like, when I come across a quote, or, you know, that gets a a thousand likes, a a million likes, say, it's like, did anyone read the, the book that that quote came from? Did anyone hear about the, the person's life that that who said that quote? And it's kind of I, I have a blog post about this called like earn your aphorism. And I think people are so obsessed with the aphorism of, you know, can you tell me the the right message in 10 words, but no one actually knows where it came from. They don't understand the bigger picture of how it, yeah. this aphorism came to be. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's interesting in marketing because you have to navigate this dichotomy of doing what primarily doing what your clients and what your brands need you to do, which is sometimes not what you would personally want to do from a stylistic standpoint, but something that you know will have the impact that you ultimately want to have for your target audience, which is ultimately what you should want to be doing. So I don't know if that made any sense, but sometimes one of the hardest things I've had to learn in the industry is swallowing my personal pride, my, my creative flair and going with what I'm seeing is being well received. Even if listening it's against to the data. my personal vision. Yeah. Listening to the data, listening to negative feedback. Like I've created lots of things that didn't get traction. And the only way that you can continue is humbling yourself. Um, in order to get the product that you ultimately want. So, yeah. Well, and I think on that same note, a big thing that I'm kind of having to overcome, I don't know if you want to call it like a, an ego thing, but realizing that, you know, the, the, the creative flair that I want to add, that's not the point. The point is that the audience, I mean, for myself, the point is that the audience either takes the message whether that means through some kind of value exchange where maybe they buy something that I'm selling, but it's because, you know, they felt inspired. They're taking on the message and using it. I mean, that's, that's what it comes down to. That's the metric that matters regardless of, you know, how I think it should be, how I think, how I would want the creative style to be. It's are people you like appreciating the message and that's, that's what it comes down to. And for me, it's been a big thing I've had to overcome and say, people like quote posts, so I'm going to have to do more of those. People like videos, and they don't read as much blogs, so I'm going to have to make more of those. And it's 
just something I'm overcoming. But I did want to also touch on the other part of that question when you were talking about marketing and branding and things to kind of think about from a, a wider view. And I don't think I have a perfect answer for that. But one thing that I've noticed, and this is more for the small businesses, smaller freelancers, kind of what I'm beginning to do now is realizing that a lot of the the stuff out there, a lot of the really cool content that I think someone like myself, someone with a camera who's 20 something is very capable of making and looking perf- making it look professional, these kind of methods or techniques, they're becoming homogenized. And a quick example of this, I think you see this kind of on TikTok a lot, where it's this flowy, um, they're like graphical wipes, like an editing technique where it's you flip the camera, and it changes the shot to a, a different shot. And so something like those, it's becoming so everyone can do that. Now everyone can make flowy edits. And they look fantastic. But because of that, I think no one's standing out. And so I think that's probably the the biggest question that marketers and, and branding experts are always answering is how do we make something stand out? And just right now from what I see is because the tools for creating professional content where the, the price of cameras have gone down so much, the the ability to do graphic design stuff with something like Canva um, and have really well done illustrations because the threshold for that is so cheap. So there's no gatekeepers anymore people are going to have to get more creative with their marketing. And that's probably been the yeah. the thing since the dawn of marketing that people always have to figure out. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a race for innovation and who's going to get there fastest because, you know, you use the example of TikTok. You're absolutely right. The second that a trend is established, um, everyone is going to rise to the challenge and do the same thing, right? And so very quickly everyone is on the same playing field again. And then it's a, it's a, um, kind of fight for who, who's, who else is going to submerge, uh, not submerge, emerge from the surface and rise up and be distinguishable <laughs> for a moment. Um, but I think that's what makes the industry so fun. I'm wondering, so I, I want to hear about this new print magazine and I, you mentioned it to me, it's purple, purple zine, purple zine. I purple totally zine, botched yeah. it. Heck yes. Um, and I am really excited to hear about it. So can you tell us a little bit more about this new magazine? Yeah. So, I mean, that's just for the the people listening, that's like 70% of the reason I, I wanted to do this interview with Kara <laughs> asking me questions. And I mean, it's, it's probably going to be, I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's probably going to be released. This episode's probably going to be released around the same time as that. But the magazine I'm so excited for, it. and I don't even know if magazine is the right word. Cause it's, it's going to be over like right around a hundred pages. Um, and at this point, it's like a book, yeah, it's, it's more <laughs> like a book and it's only going to be produced once. It's not like a monthly thing that I'm going to start rolling out because it's taking a long time to do. But essentially what it is, is since I started blogging in, let's say November, November 2020 to about now, really since June, looking at everything that I've written and saying, what what are kind of the, the, the themes that I'm hitting on? And 
I'll talk about the four kind of themes that kind of emerge from this, but I'm taking my favorite, the the top ones, the ones that I thought I articulated the idea the best, taking the best like 40 or, or 50 and creating a collage for each one. And so I'm going to have probably about 45 to 50 illustrations, which is really what the time, where the time is going. Cause I'm adding a few new kind of, and I'm calling them essays now because I don't think uh, a book about blogs sells as well. So I think essays sounds a little bit nicer, a little more professional. It's very scholarly. Yeah. But it's art and essays for, uh, for creatives or for artists. I don't know what title I'm going to say, but the, the subtitle of this magazine is think, consume, create, become. And that is kind of the themes that emerged in my writing. And it's, if you want to think of it like a quadrant or almost like a step-by-step think is like the philosophies, like philosophies that have nothing to do with creating, but more so, you know, like Alan Watts, which I know I put on that, that thing that I sent you Kara, but just the idea of the metaphysical, the different philosophies, morals about life, that is where, and thinking about thinking, self-awareness, I think all those fit into the first category of think. And what that says is you can't create anything original if you don't even know how you think, if you don't even know how you react to certain scenarios, if you don't even know how you're um, kind of emotionally wound. Because I think without that, we can't tell a compelling story. If we can't, because um, I mean, a lot of novel, all the novels are the writer putting themselves in the head of the character. And I don't think you can do that unless you have a grasp on your tendencies, your your virtues and your vices. So I think all that fits in think. The next thing is consume and consuming art and entertainment. I mean, not exclusive to the avant-garde films and the, the, the galleries. I think it's more than that. I think it's everything you're consuming whether that's podcasts, music, you know, just sitcoms, which I consume a lot of. I think, I don't think there's anything wrong with being like, oh, only watch movies from great directors. It's sometimes we just want to watch some like stuff to, to, I don't know, crap. Sometimes we just want to watch crap, I think is yeah. the right way of saying it. And I think also in that category of consume is the, the stuff that we are learning. So it doesn't have to be all entertainment. It's you know, YouTube content, a lot of it that I see is, is educational or a, a tutorial of some sort that, it, and so it's everything that you consume that's art entertainment, um, that's meant to persuade you, to entertain you, to inform you all that under the sun that falls under consume. And rather than me lay out what you should consume, cause everyone's different. I don't think it's worth doing that. I wanted to lay out how to think about consumption. And in one of the things of that is curation, I think is a, a double-edged sword. And right now, the the way curation on a lot of apps, say Spotify with music, we're not really willing to step outside of our, our comfort zone, our boundaries. And because of that, I think we're missing a lot of opportunities for combinational creativity, where we take something from a completely different industry, from a completely different um, genre combine it with something we know very intimately and create something very original. And, and just one last note on, on that idea of combinational creativity. I think for myself, I was so 
invested in self-help books and kind of business books and marketing books. And it wasn't until like I, I bought like a, a really easy to read Neil deGrasse Tyson book uh, about, you know, the stars and astronomy. And I'm like, okay, I'm never going to get to the point where I become an astronomer, but just knowing a little bit about it um, gives me a lot more to think about. It really expands my worldview. And I've started doing that with other things. I've started reading fiction books, which I haven't really since middle school. And so that's a whole nother world. And chess. I was gonna, Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I, no, no, don't apologize. I was going to stop you right there because oh, you, you bring up a really interesting point. And it's something I've also noticed too, um, where people really only take or consume what's useful to them or what they think is going to be useful to them whether that be music that's curated based on their preferences. For me, it's 80s music, right? Or um, having even like a recommended for you list on Netflix, um, you know, and, and, and the industries themselves have caught on to this trend and they're helping us <laughs> with our curation, right? Um, but it's really interesting because yeah, you don't really see that proclivity anymore, at least I don't, of people learning things just for the sake of it, unless it has a direct tie-in to their work or to somebody that they care about's interests. They're not going to learn about the stars or um, I, spiders or whatever it might be. Um, so I just applaud you for doing that and seeking that. Yeah, and I mean, the question that runs through my mind is, is this a new thing when we have so much content or has this always been kind of a thing where, you know, people in their, their twenties think they don't need anything else. I wonder if this is a pattern that's been repeated throughout time or if it's, it's new because of the technology and because of the amount of consumption we have that we ha kind of have to make the hard choices and say, I'm not going to consume something that doesn't interest me because I could spend 24 hours a day consuming hyper relevant content. Right. And I think, too, it's interesting that there's a lot of irony here um, because as we've become so um, empowered and strengthened by technology and technology curates everything for us, we carry around many computers, knowledge is, has never been more accessible um, and not only accessible, but instantaneously accessible. But I think because of that, we have lost our appreciation for it and we've gone, we've become lazy. Um, and I think, you know, think back to the olden days, sorry if my parents are listening, but like, you know, in the seventies, they would have to go to the library and scavenge <laughs> for research. They would have to pour through aisles of books for hours to find their information. But there was something kind of cool about that. And I think there was a value to knowledge because it came at... <laughs> Uh, a lot of, you know, mental labor and, you know, maybe physical labor running up and down aisles. And so I guess my point is in the pursuit of creating more access to knowledge, I think we're also minimizing our ability to access knowledge because things are way too easy now. And that's such, no, that's, such, that that's such a great point. And that's kind of something that I've like slowly realized as I've kind of taken on this blogging uh, a journey and kind of just reflecting on more things more often 
And I just wrote down reading because that was the other thing that was kind of a big part of the the consume consume side of things is people don't really read books anymore. And uh, again, it comes back to, you know, where people in the 90s, I, I'm sure teens and, and uh, 20-year-olds kind of got sick of reading too. But I wonder, is this become like a, a cultural phenomenon because of the technology that we have? And I, I agree with what you said about there is something in having to kind of extend mental labor or uh, paying for something that makes it more valuable to us. And when we have this abundance of information for free, I don't think we value it. No, definitely not. Yeah. And so a, a big part of my thinking is that sometimes we have to pay for something or sacrifice in another way that doesn't have to be through money, but we have to make a sacrifice to appreciate um, to appreciate what we're consuming. And I have a little blog post called Indirect Wisdom, and it's that same note of so many books now are just like, here's five steps to success. And everyone has iterations on that title, but it's the person who writes a, a and there's a great book called The, the Go-Getter or The Go-Giver. Um, and that go-giver is basically a novel that wraps in these lessons about business principles. And I don't really see those that often of a novel that kind of expresses ideas in a, a less overt way. And I wish we could see more like that. Yeah, Ugh, this is so good. And I think this ties back to the kind of point we were talking about earlier with innovation and the, the quest for doing something different, I think the key to innovation as a marketer, as a creator, is putting in a lot of time and energy and, and, and having that sacrifice, like you said, uh, whatever that might be, in order to get what you want. Because the most valuable thing we have is our time, right? And therefore, things that expel more time tend to be more valuable to us because it took us time to get there. <laughs> um, and so I'm wondering. Well, cause that, no, that, that point goes back to the aphorisms thing that we were talking about earlier. Right. Where when TikTok videos have like, you know, and this is again, like a kind of exaggeration, but how I got rich in, in one month, how I earned $10,000 in one month. And it's like, one minute clips and maybe some of their advice isn't is somewhat useful and it's like oh maybe set aside 100 bucks a month to invest in a, a Roth IRA that type of advice is useful but the fact is when we're blowing through it in 60 seconds as quick as it goes in it goes out and i think that's why books are valuable because they took time they took sacrifice to to consume the information and now you have to sit with it because you really invested in it. Yeah, yeah. And, and this really leads into something I was really wanting to ask you about in general. So with PEC, the Purple Elephant Collective, I'm trying to make that a thing, so I'm going to keep saying PEC. Um, you know, you have so many different types of creative materials that you're churning out. How do you, how do you separate between them and how do you allow yourself time, like you said, to kind of sit with each of them? Um, is there like an organizational system that you use or kind of a method that you found to be able to 
give them each, you know, time and attention, but also um, not, I guess, blend them together or compromise time for each individual one. Yeah, I, I think that just without intending to, I do kind of sacrifice on one end if I focus more on the other. When I started the podcast and I started doing the blogs, I only released two short films in the span of like six months. Whereas before when I was doing, wasn't writing at all, I really got in a groove and was doing one like every month and a half, every two months. And it it's not necessarily that I feel like I sacrificed on the short film side. It's that I founded a different interest and I hyper-focused on that interest. And now I can zoom out and say, oh, I can be a filmmaker. I can be a writer. I can be a podcaster. What do I really like? And I can only ask that after kind of hyper-focusing on each one. But to answer that question of how I don't get them mixed up, for me personally, I think it all boils down to writing. And I think that's kind of the, if you want to think of it like a, a pyramid, I think almost any medium comes from writing. Music, you write the song. Um, filmmaking, you write the script. Obviously novels, you write the writing. Um, but even something like, maybe not uh, uh, like illustrations as much, but I do think all ideas start as a maybe a, a little written one or two words on your phone. Um, sometimes it's only visual, sometimes it's only audio, but I do think that writing has been kind of the core of everything that I've done. It since I've been a kid, it's you know, I always wanted to write a book, and it's realizing that you know, when I write a script, I'm still writing, even though I get to make a little film and, and get to act. And so I think it's really writing is the core of it with, you know, collage being kind of that, that side thing where that's really, really more for fun without trying to make it anything special. And so I think that's more like, I look at it like a very relaxing act, like a hobby, but I think in terms of stuff that I want to profit from and, and inspire people and really make the core of my business, it all boils down to writing. So, oh man, love that. We love writing. I'm a journalism major, so I have to say that. I'm just kidding. Um, so, you know, oh man, you have so many good things to say. And I'm wondering, you know, as you step into this next season um, and as we're kind of wrapping up, you know, today's conversation, you have a lot of ideas, a lot of them that you've already implemented um, and are implementing and we can't wait to see the purple zine coming out real soon. Um, but where do you want to go from here? What are your goals in the next year or two? And I know people hate this question, but can you tell us? I can try to. And after I answer this, I do want to say the last two aspects of the the categories of the purple zine. Right. Um but from here, I graduate in December and, you know, it's off into the real world, but not really because I'm going to be in the same apartment in, in spring. And so I think for me, you know, I, I imagine this answer will change many times over. But at this moment, it's expanding what I'm doing on the videography side side of things where, you know, whether that shows up as wedding videography or it shows up as doing marketing for small businesses. I don't know what that'll look like. That would be one aspect of my year goal. Another aspect might be just picking up a job, 
humbling myself and saying, okay, I'm going to serve because uh, I don't have enough clients doing videography to sustain myself and that's okay. But the core, the the fun part, the stuff that I'm really passionate about, whether that's Purple Elephant or whether that shows up as some other business, I think what's going to happen is is really I don't know. And I think this magazine is a, a perfect example of kind of what happens when I don't know. And this is a, a tangent <laughs> to answer the question in an indirect way. But this summer – I set out to write a, a novel, novel in quotation marks, but a book. And, you know, I had some ambition of like 60,000 words and I got 10,000 words in at the beginning of the summer. And then I just kind of, it fizzled out. And some point, I don't know when, I don't know how, but this idea for the magazine of kind of curating my own blogs came to my head and I started pursuing that. And it was a lot less intimidating because I had done all the writing. And like I said, whenever this gets posted, I know the pot, the, the magazine will be out. But it's – I set out to write a, a book and I came out with this purple zine. And it's like I can say what my goals are and I, I'll still try to answer it. But I can say what it is, but it's going to be I strive for a, a novel and I end up with this colorful 100-page magazine. So it's like a little less on the content side, a little less um, time I put in, but in my opinion, more colorful and more beautiful. And that's kind of the metaphor for like my goal setting is maybe I don't reach my expectations, but it's something more interesting than I could have imagined. But to say what I want to do in the spring, very briefly, I want to start doing um, workshops. I don't know what that'll look like, uh, creative talks and kind of using a, a space in Columbia called VidWest Studios and seeing how I can work with them and really kind of create a, a community, uh, a collective, if you will, um, of people in, in Columbia, of both like student filmmakers, student artists, and professionals in the area and seeing how, how sparks can fly when um, I, I set up that community and set up those events. That's what I'll spend I my spring that. doing. That's so cool. I would love to help help with that. <laughs> I'm sure I'll reach out to you about it Please. just to, to hear your input. Would love that. But really um, quick, can I answer the yep. or say the other yes. two themes? Please do. <laughs> so the other two are create and become. And with create, this is, again, I think third mention of it, the, the War of Art, Stephen Pressfield's book create that theme was designed to not tell you what to create, not tell you how to go about doing it, but to kind of get at the the core of what is the resistance? What actually holds you up? And how can writing persuade you that it's all in your head and that um, a writer's block is a myth, which is something I really want to push for because, you know, it, it, it was marketed to us as a, a thing we talk about. And I think it could be marketed as a myth, if we kind of use uh, the marketing against it. Um, it. And so I think one of the key things is, again, with the curation, we have this oversaturation bias, where we think everyone out there is doing it better than us. Everyone has an opinion that's more articulate, better than us. We have nothing to say, we should never dip our toes in the water. And it's kind of how can I use my thoughts, my impressions, what I've learned from reading 
to kind of persuade people that's not true. And that's what that create section is about. And the finally become is what happens once you're doing it. And I really wrote this more for myself. It's I'm here. I'm not successful by any stretch of the imagination, but I've overcome the the basic fears. I'm in the process. I'm doing the work. I'm doing the practice. How do I, how do I move on? How do I deal with, um, not getting the reception that I wanted as quickly as I wanted? Um, how do I find the patience for, um, you know, I feel like a lot of artists, a lot of, um, you know, whether it's filmmaker, any creative medium, people are always talking about, I knew I was better before people discovered me. I knew I was the best. I, I think for rappers, this is what's in my head, but rappers are always saying, you know, I knew I was the best rapper around before anyone ever had heard of me. And I think, wow, that's a little, <laughs> that's a little arrogant for sure. But I think a part of that mindset exists in me and I'm sure it exists on a lot of, you know, creators in, in any medium, in any kind of content creation, uh, medium. And, and just to, to wrap that up, it's kind of how I, how I dealt with that, how I'm continuing to deal with that. And the other aspect of become is we can't just create content. Uh, we can't just create art for free. We have to think about the economics of it. How can we even, maybe not everyone strives to be a, a full-time paying artist or, or creative, but if you do, what are the things you have to think about? And this is more observations with less about like original art and how to balance being an artist with being a content creator, which I would define as the artist goes from zero to one and the content creator goes from one to infinity. And I think we can be both. And so it's how do we swap our caps from the risky innovator to the person who can market our idea, can sell our idea, can really find a way to make money and sustain the artist inside of us. Absolutely. And I remember back, um, when you had me on in May, that was one of your big questions was what to tell artists that may be hesitant about doing advertising. I was asking doing... for myself. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it now. I'm just kidding. Yeah. But, but for real, I think, and my advice was to be open, to be receptive to that, to not, um, pass up those opportunities simply because they fall in a category that you might not have considered for yourself, um, before. So yeah, I think you nailed it. Oh, yes. What are you intensely curious about right now, <laughs> Sean? That's such a great question, Kara. <laughs> yeah, it just came to me. I think right now I'm I'm intensely curious about, well, I guess a couple of things, but, you know, how do you sell um, art that doesn't sacrifice integrity but can sustain a living? That's kind of one the other side would be how do you create in-person events, in-person community that's valuable to people? And I think the the side answer of that or the side question about that is, and it doesn't mean just talking at people. It's how do you get people active? How do you get people creating in kind of a, a community setting, in kind of an event setting? What does that look like? And that those are two questions I think I'm always going to be asking and we'll be answering this coming year. Yeah, those are both really good questions. I'd be curious to, to f hear what you end up finding <laughs> in your pursuit of those answers. Um, 
Well, this has been a pleasure. Uh, is there like a wrap-up song? Do I have to sing or something? Usually I add a little <laughs> ding, but I'll say uh, if anyone listening is curious about the magazine, uh, the Purple Zine, wants to buy it, uh, it will be on my website. Link will be in the description. I don't know what how much it's going to cost, so I'm not going to say how much it costs, but I promise you it will be worth your while. It will be like um, kind of a, a, a guidebook that can guide you to think about um, how to create. I, I mean, there's no, there's not concrete answers. I'm not going to kind of clickbait you into buying it, but I, I really think it can be the thing you come back to again and again, whenever you're feeling um, like writer's block is real or and you need someone to tell you it's a myth and you need someone to tell you create every day, put on your professional hat and don't be an amateur. Don't try to be perfect. I think we, we all need a, a book like that, whether that, whether you buy mine or someone else's, because I'm sure they exist. The War of Art is a great example, Stephen Pressfield's book. Um, but we just need something like that. And so, yeah, absolutely, I'll, I'll link that. Great work, Sean. I'm excited for your book. Great work, Kara. I'm, that was an <laughs> incredible interview. Um, thanks, everybody, for listening. I, we'll, I'll see you next week, depending on when this gets posted, maybe in two weeks. But um, thank you all for listening. This has been Purple Elephant Radio. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.